One of the kind of frameworks we use to think about where machines can appropriately be inserted into a process um, across spaces. This could be in uh, construction or education or healthcare or you know being a corporate employee in a workplace. Uh, tasks that are dull, dirty, or dangerous <laughs> are really good fits for machines. <laughs> it turns out um, things that. Uh, don't necessarily bring out the best in humans. In fact, they can sometimes be, um, if not dangerous, at least demeaning, not inspiring. And so we think about the application of AI-driven automation to extract kind of the mundane stuff out of daily work and make humans better. Welcome to the Technobiotic Podcast, Episode 5. Join us on our journey to find humanity among technology. With your hosts, Laura Araujo, Matt Drew, and Shane Carlson. With special guest, Dan Turchin. Hello and welcome to the Technobiotic Podcast. I'm Shane Carlson, one of your co-hosts. I'm here today with my fellow co-host, Laura Araujo. Laura, how you doing? Great. Super. Awesome. How are things going? I understand you're in California today. We are. Uh... Charlie, Charles Araujo, maybe you remember from the first podcast, if you checked it out. Uh, we're we're in, in Southern California for uh, my father-in-law's 70th birthday. Uh, it was a surprise birthday party, and he hates surprises. So it was a lot of fun. <laughs> awesome. I, I love surprising people who don't like surprises. First, they're angry. <laughs> then they're usually you know, emotional and happy that they got surprised, but still angry that you surprised them somehow. <laughs> yes. Thanks. Yes, yes, yes. So at 70, how much of his birthday was technology related? Was there a lot of social media posts and Instagramming to be had? You know, there actually was not. Uh -huh. the, uh, the few pictures that were taken were at the very end because I insisted that uh, that we should at least document the fact that this happened. Uh, so, <laughs> Family coming in from all over to celebrate this man's 70th birthday, which is only going to happen once in his life. Exactly, exactly. The fascinating thing to me, though, uh, and, and Charlie both, was that how much of his life was not necessarily just family. There was there was my Charlie and his brother and Charlie Sr. and his wife uh, at one table, and the rest were all of these different people from different different veins of his life. So, and not necessarily found by, I think they did the old-fashioned phone call route rather than rather than emailing or, or Somebody had texting. Somebody open an address book, <laughs> yeah. go through the uh, list, dial or... the friends, and <laughs> swear them to secrecy. Yes, exactly, exactly. Wait for Charlie's dad to not be within earshot to, to make those phone calls. So. Yes. A very analog, clandestine uh, approach to birthday planning. Yes. Well, well excellent. So unfortunately, Matt Drew is unable to join us today. He had some other commitments, but uh, we do have an amazing guest lined up for the podcast today, and I'll go ahead and introduce him, uh, a gentleman by the name of Dan Turchin. And Dan is the CEO founder of a company called Astound.ai, and I happen to have the benefit of having known Dan in the industry for a number of years now, where he has done a couple different things in the space of machine learning and artificial intelligence. And I'm always excited when him and I get a chance to catch up. But when we talked earlier in different episodes of the podcast, we keep touching on the concept of artificial intelligence and machine learning and promising to bring on a domain expert in, in this area. And Dan was actually the first person that came to mind, so I'm glad he was able to join us. So, Dan, welcome. Hey, Laura. Hey, Shane. Good to be here. Thrilled to Great. be on the podcast. Uh, awesome. Laura, I'm a big fan you've never met because I'm a fan of your husband's. That's fair. Well, <laughs> by the end of this podcast, you're going to be an even bigger fan of Laura. I promise. <laughs> you, promise. Get, you get the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Very yeah. good. <laughs> yes. When we, when we talk about or joke about people having better halves uh, and having known Charlie as long as you and probably the same amount of time, I can definitely say Laura is certainly his current better half. <laughs> well, thank she, you. She brings out the best parts of Charlie. So, um, well, but Dan, conversation. 
Yeah, I, I, I'm really excited about this one. Dan, talk to us a little bit, you know, one about your background and how you ended up getting into, you know, AI and machine learning. It's it's not something you, you typically say uh, when you're five years old, I'm going to program machines to be smarter than people. How'd you end up doing this? Uh, it all starts with deep passion for making work life better for every employee. Um, ironically, despite the fact that my career has all been related to AI and machine learning, uh, and technology, it's really that human experience with technology that drives me. And it's based on a fundamental belief that our relationship with technology is changing, has changed, is changing more rapidly um, than ever before. I would, uh, I, I, would, I would argue that in the next two years, the, the, the relationship or the intersection between person and machine or person and technology will change more than it has in the past 200. And to me, that's that's an amazing opportunity. What a what a great time to be alive and to be um, on the forefront of of kind of shaping the dialogue around what it means to kind of coexist with machines. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you on that two year event horizon in terms of people one being more aware of what machines are doing in their life, but two interfacing in machines in a way that they haven't done before. And I think, you know, those of us who grew up with the early days of sci-fi television, Star Trek and, and other things, we've been looking forward to this time where we interface with computers, have uh, machine robots uh, to help us in the menial tasks and the day-to-day -day things. But I really think this is something that up until recently, a lot of that interface with those machines and those robots and the AI has been kind of behind the scenes. If you think about the Alexas and the other things of the world, we're asking them simple queries or providing us simple answers, performing simple tasks for us. But I really see how that space has evolved rapidly in the last two or three years. And I think it's really coming to the forefront and people are starting to be exposed to it more and more. Can you talk a little bit about how you see that happening and how you see that relationship with us and machines and AI transforming? Well, let me roll back the clock. We'll open the time capsule for a minute. Uh, first company I started was uh, called AeroPrize, and we started it in uh, 97. And the, the idea back then was, um, now uh, brace yourself, but at the time, um, it seemed shocking that mobile technology um, may just uh, impact work life for, for employees. The, the notion that you could put a computer in your hand was so far-fetched. Um, that, you know, if you had a pager, you were a drug dealer. And uh, if you had a BlackBerry, you know, you were either the president or, you know, you were a Wall Street mogul. Um, so the notion at that time that, you know, a, uh, a field worker or, uh, you know, a corporate employee might benefit from some kind of data-driven experience with a mobile computer um, was super far-fetched. And that was what we did. So we, we launched AeroPrize and we said, actually, you know, computer in every pocket, and every, uh, every IT employee that is measured based on hitting some SLA when they're away from a desk, they're going to now have the tools that map to the expectations that their leaders and their customers have. And I, believe it or not, you know, that, was, uh, that blew people's minds. <laughs> and so what we did is we developed uh, what now we call AI, but at the time we called it a self-learning personalization engine. And what it did is it, it would look at the pattern of work for an employee and adapt the application. I mean, we were coding to firmware, you know, on pagers and flip phones and things. It would adapt the application based on who was doing the work and what work they were doing. So fast forward 23 years and now, you know, not only do we have to not defend why mobile computing is powerful, but we're, we're encountering a similar shift in paradigms where we're now having to um, defend why artificial intelligence is not a threat to humanity. It's not an impediment to work. It's not a job, uh, a, a destroyer of jobs. It's all of the opposite. It fundamentally changes how we can be productive, how we can spend more time being better humans. So that same shift, whether it was, you know, desktop to mobile, client server to PC, uh, on-prem to cloud, dumb to smart <laughs> we're you know we're kind of you know we talk about being in the fourth industrial revolution well a lot of that kind of rewiring of the brain to think differently about work and ai driven automation is um is what we're going through right now and it, you know never been a better time to be in technology and being kind of 
a leader out there coaching employees through um, how to have you know a healthier relationship with technology. That is fascinating. Um that you're talking about uh, that it's not a tra- retraining people to have the technology and the AI to be seen as not a threat, uh, not something that is scary. And even though it is new and that it, in my in my personal opinion, uh, can be actually a little bit scary. Um, so I don't know if you've listened to some of the previous podcasts, but my uh, my experience growing up was a little bit different than some of the people my age Um and that I didn't necessarily, I wasn't really up on the technology. I didn't have my first cell phone. It was a track phone when I was in college that I bought myself because my parents were insistent that the technology was not important and it would be distracting and detrimental to our well-being and all of this. Um, which now I'm seeing over time, I'm retraining myself to recognize exactly that, that all of this technology, it it does the jobs that, that are monotonous that we don't necessarily need to be spending our cycles on. And it allows us the space and the time and the the mind, the mind energy to be focusing on our human skills that have been beaten out of us all of these years. Um, so one of my questions that I have for you is, and I'm sure, you know, I know this is a big, this is a big thing, but the empathy element, in my opinion, one of our key elements to being human, to our humanness is this empathy and this curiosity. And I know that there's a whole bunch of work around that's being done around this, or at least I think there is working backwards to try to unpack and unravel how this magic happens, if you will. You know, when you're doing an equation, you presume that you're going to see all of the work that's been done to come to your answer rather than just arriving. But to me, to me, I want to understand how, in your opinion, how is this being, what is the journey to allow for empathy and curiosity and these human skills to also permeate the technology so that it's not just providing us the space to be human, but also building the trust uh, that, that we can have in this technology uh, so that we can, we can have a better relationship with it. Diving right in. Sorry. No, no, no. It's a good good topic. Very germane to the conversation. So now and into the future, anything that can be predicted is better left to machines. But to your point, anything that requires rational thinking, judgment, empathy is better left to humans. So one of the kind of frameworks we use to think about where machines can appropriately be inserted into a process um, across spaces, this could be in uh, construction or education or healthcare, or you know, being a corporate employee in a workplace. Tasks that are dull, dirty, or dangerous are really good fits for machines. <laughs> it turns out, um, things that uh, d- don't necessarily bring out the best in humans. In fact, they can sometimes be, if not dangerous, at least demeaning, not inspiring. And so, w- we think about the application of AI-driven automation to extract kind of the mundane stuff out of daily work and make humans better. I'll give you an example. One of our customers runs a large call center, about 500 call center agents in the town that I never knew, but have really been excited to get to know better, Bossier City, Louisiana, somewhere near Baton Rouge, wonderful city, reinvigorated by this call center coming in and creating jobs and restoring an economy that had been kind of dormant. So I had an opportunity to spend a day shadowing some of the users of our of our products in the call center. And I met um, this wonderful call center agent, Yvonne, fresh out of a two-year degree from the local community college, not a technologist, being asked to do work that, that assumed she was a technologist. This is very unfair. So um, poor Yvonne is measured based on a 30-second acknowledgement SLA or service level agreement, which uh, Shane can attest that it's normal and it's absolutely inhuman because when that phone rings to expect Yvonne to have, quote, the right answer within 30 seconds, it's, it's, un, it's, it's cruel, right? And yet, you know, she's actually, her, her pay, her bonus is actually based on her performance mm. against that 30-second SLA. So I watched her, true stories, phone rings and Customer on the other end is describing an issue that her BlackBerry will no longer sync. Um, poor Yvonne didn't know if she was referring to a fruit, a mineral, certainly not a mobile device. <laughs> and so I'm watching, you know, Yvonne kind of squirm 
um, at the end of the day, I came back, I was, I was showing them our product and how it was going to be integrated into their workflow. And I showed how in the future, um, when this caller, you know, calls up and asks, for example, a question about a BlackBerry, um, how Yvonne would get a screen pop describing the problem with essentially a next best action to take. Here's a knowledge article here, have the user, you know, reset the APN setting because they're using a Verizon phone. Here's the reset button, you know, nice little video. Yvonne was there in the front row when I was going through the demo, she started to cry. I walked away saying, if we change just one life like Yvonne's, we've given something back. And the fact is there are 50 million call center agents like Yvonne. (laughs) So, you know, this notion that 50 million lives can be changed through the application of AI driven automation, gosh, that makes me pretty excited about the future of humanity and how it's going to, you know, how the future of humanity is going to be augmented by the application of technology and and machines. I think we as humans tend to be scared of new technology, especially when we look at something that has the, the potential to drive out work that humans are currently doing. And this goes into a much broader and deeper discussion around how we measure our own worth as humans, and typically by trading it for an hourly wage, an annual salary, or some recompensation for the time that we're investing. And I think so much, and you know, I think back to some of the science fiction works of you know Robert Heinlein and others who who have tackled the kind of socioeconomic structure of our world, and talked about futures in which we decouple human worth and human value from our ability to trade our time and energy for profit. And you know, looking at this and looking at AI, this definitely has the potential to at least start forcing us to have the conversations around how do we measure the worth of a human, how do we reward a human being for their contributions to society and not just to their contributions to productivity and the bottom line of corporation. How do you get people past that fear factor when you talk about AI, Dan, in terms of worry that if I'm coming and bringing in a machine of some kind that takes labor out of the equation, at what point do companies look to capitalize on that labor or the extraction of labor out of their their productivity and put people out of work you know how do you how do you approach that conversation with businesses that you're you're working with and how do you get them to see the potential not just in the labor arbitrage portion of this but freeing up those humans to do that more strategic work my friend yvonne can now do the same volume of work in 20 percent less time so it changes the world she can make the same amount of money and leave an hour early to be a better human. And that can mean, you know, in her, her case, she just got married. You know, she can spend more time with her husband. She's got, um, you know, causes that she's passionate about. She volunteers at an animal shelter. Couldn't do that before. Technology just gave her back an hour a day to be a better human, right? To be a better spouse, a better daughter, you know, eventually a better parent. There is nothing but net positive to be gained when everyone on the planet gets an hour a day back to be a better human. And I think, you know, to your question or to your point, Shane, there's no better way to demonstrate the value of a human being. This isn't about technology. This isn't about, you know, dystopian, you know, views of the bot apocalypse. Like it's, it's comically, uh, you know, misguided to think that that's really how technology will intersect with humanity or, or with work. And I think, you know, the more we can share these stories and, um, you know, talk about how technology is the best way that we can demonstrate the value of a human being, I think the more we're doing a service to, you know, the next billion employees that are going to enter the workforce. I guess, and, and where I'm coming from, perhaps out of naivete, but um, you, you mentioned early on that uh, in the next two years, everything is going to transform dramatically. And I agree. I mean, we're seeing these dramatic shifts all everywhere. So someone like Yvonne, should she not be trepidatious that that one hour free where she gets to volunteer at the animal shelter or she gets to spend with her husband, that doesn't turn into eight hours free where she's now looking for a different manual labor job, something that, or, or whatever it may be, that some kind of job that, that her small skill set, her two-year degree, her whatever, her training um, 
can put her to work you know why why should someone like her not be trepidatious not be fearful coming from coming from uh, the more human the less tech side of things not knowing that much about AI that in my mind for people like her I, I do fear for them then I'm sure I'm not alone so you used the right word earlier empathy so there's certain things that at least for the foreseeable future won't replace Yvonne and that's because the answers that Yvonne is typically giving, or the 50 million other Yvonnes, are things that could typically be discovered in a quick Google search. And there's a reason why they're not. So 93% of, of incidents or issues, at least in an IT capacity, continue to be reported either via email or via the phone. And the reason that's the case is because there's an expectation that the best answer is going to come from a human being. There's still, even in an age of machines, there's still a thirst for human interaction. And that empathy, that rational thinking, that ability to pivot and have a dialogue and follow up and do the things that you expect from an interaction with a human, Yvonne's uniquely going to have that trait now and into the future. And when I think about the threat to jobs, um, I, I think back about other waves of technology and how um, technology has created new fields and reinvented careers. We could go jump in the Wayback Machine again and talk about, you know, switchboard operators. Turns out that was one of the most common roles for females in the 1920s. And somehow a lot of switchboard operators reinvented themselves. And we don't think about, you know, the, the, the great job apocalypse when, uh, you know, when, when switchboard operators were eliminated because uh, uh, manual switching of phone calls was no longer necessary. You know, 20 years ago, when the web came into being, there were a lot of people that are now very gainfully employed in the SEO or search engine optimization industry. It spawned lots of high paying careers, you know, interesting forms of knowledge work. You know, many very successful companies have been created. Well, that's a whole economy that didn't exist. <laughs> uh, and, and, and so, you know, while there, there may be jobs that are primarily consist of tasks that are dull, dirty and dangerous, that will go away, I'd argue those are opportunities to reskill and upskill. And the outcome of that reskilling and upskilling is whole categories of better knowledge workers that couldn't exist. So speaking of the, the concept of upskilling and reskilling our society to be more ready for the future that, that's rapidly coming, I, I'm of the personal opinion that the work we should have been doing to reskill people should have started 10 or 15 years ago. And unfortunately, you know, hindsight is always better than than foresight in uh, looking back and it's easy to 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 point out where things went wrong or where things should have been better what do you think it's going to take to get society to recognize and start training people on the skills and I, I think the answer is partly in the question because it, it's always one of those things where demand creates the opportunity and the need for people to start training when are you going to see, when do you think we're going to see society recognize the skills gap that's coming and start pouring bodies and people into that, into that gap? Yeah. So Shane, you and I know that it's been a steady drumbeat over the last 15 years of uh, CIOs talking about digital transformation and this kind of elusive uh, goal of, of transforming the employee experience with technology. Um, and what we've seen is uh, you know, incremental innovation, things like, you know, uh, you know, we both have spent time at ServiceNow, you automate a process, put an application in the cloud, you wrap, you know, a nice UI around it. And all of a sudden an approval process that used to take days now is, now is, you know, taking minutes or, you know, small number of hours. The thing that's catalyzing this rapid shift is that, that, um, that objective, the better employee experience. It hasn't changed. We just now have such more, uh, more powerful technology to be able to apply to that same problem. So what's happening is employees come into work and, you know, the night before they got, you know, some smart Netflix recommendations or they, you know, were able to get, you know, their package delivered faster by Amazon. And they say, why is it that when I come to work, it's like I'm back in the stone ages, you know, I expect better experience, you know, better experience. And, CIO or CEO, you know, I'm not telling you how to do your job or what technology to use. I'm just telling you that, you know, you're, you've been over promising and under delivering. So, you know, I can go down the street to our competitor and get a job where they're more committed to my, 
you know, my experience. And so all of a sudden the CIO and the board is forced to think about the application of these technologies just to be able to, uh, you know, deliver on the expectations that the employees already have about what it means to be able to work efficiently. So it's happening from the, I'd say from the bottom up, um, kind of, a, you know, call it an employee led technology revolution, um, much more so than a top down technology-driven technology revolution. I definitely have to agree there. And you're starting to see that employees have choice nowadays. And if you come from an organization that was very good at eliminating that uh, you know, high-volume, low-value work out of the equation of their day-to-day, they see that, they appreciate that, they go somewhere else where they're still having to do a lot of those, uh, what is it, dull, dirty, or dangerous tasks that are unnecessary, uh, and they've seen it unnecessary they're less likely to stay in that role than they would be to go to another organization that's recognized the value of, of eliminating that work from their workflow and making their day-to-day work life better. So I definitely have to agree. Um, let me pivot a little bit in you know, terms of you know, where AI is. I mean, what is currently kind of, from your point of view, the state of AI in not just enterprise technology, but kind of in the world? I mean, what's, what's happening in the world of AI? What are the conversations that are going on among the experts in this field? And what are the things that are exciting to you and others in the space about what's happening in the near-term future and the long-term future? A lot of what's in the popular press is related to what we call AGI, Artificial General Intelligence. And we have done an awful job as a technology community setting expectations that machines will think and behave like humans soon. And that's because we make bad movies and we tell bad jokes and we, and we, we anthropomorphize our bots like we have done to Alexa or Siri. And we really do a disservice because um, AGI, artificial general intelligence, is probably, by, by any scientific estimates, probably 50 to 60 years off. Um, in fact, in terms of the current state of AGI, we're probably able to automate roughly the cognitive ability of a mouse, far, far from even an infant, um, let alone a toddler, et cetera. So um, where we are at is in a phase that we call narrow AI. And when I talk about things like what Yvonne does with AI, AI being able to make her better by making contextual recommendations. What what should you do next based on um, uncovering answers that are buried in mountains of of typically unstructured, sometimes structured and unstructured data. That augmentation of human capabilities, that narrow artificial intelligence is working quite well. And what you're going to see is whether it's, um, you know, I've shared a couple examples of, of how it's benefiting employees or customer service agents, but you'll see that applied to many fields. So um, what, what maybe a decade ago was used for beating the, the champ at Go, you know, a, a board game or chess or determining what, you know, what pictures have cats in them, that was 1.0. <laughs> and now, so the, the kinds of problems we're solving with AI now, narrow AI, are things like, using satellite imagery to figure out where the next famine or drought will occur. Um, Using AI to uh, increase the accuracy of the detection of tumors in the pancreas. Self-driving cars is a popular one, but, you know, automating the process of whether it's elderly people in a golf community, you know, we're now at the point where self-driving cars can credibly you know, get elderly people around in golf carts in a confined setting. Not not ready for a downtown Palo Alto or things like that, but um, narrow AI is applying, you know, kind of the principles and mechanics of using a ton of data to find answers that typically assist the human decision-making process. I'd say, you know, that's where we're doing great. But AGI, 50 yeah. to 60 years away. Definitely uh, in line with what I've been seeing and in, in reading in, in my own research. 
just a, another kind of quick question relevant to the progress of AI in the space. I know last week, I think it was the, the BSI conference was happening in the UK and uh, AI and machine learning was a huge area of conversation from what I could see monitoring some of the Twitter channels and the other social media presences. One of the things that, that caught me, um, not necessarily surprised because it makes sense when I, when I drill into it, but something I hadn't really been thinking of is the fact that if you take uh, a set of algorithms, so, you know, a, a narrow AI, if you will, packaged up and put it on one computer system that has certain technical specs and then put it on a completely different computer system that has higher technical level specs and then feed both of those different sets of information, the outcomes uh, are very, very different from machine to machine, from experience to experience. So it's, I don't want to call it a personality per se, but depending on the environment, much like humans, depending on the information the, the machines and the algorithms are fed, you get very different results, which is to be expected from a, from a scientific point of view. But it's one of the things that, that really I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about. The reality of that is, though, is you're getting different outcomes based off of environmental exposure. And the whole conversation from a human point of view, typically we, we talk about nature versus nurture and the environment you're raised in and the information you're fed and the experiences you have create the person that you are piled on top of an underlying operating system of, of human nature and how we're built and our lizard brain reactions to things. What is your take on that variability? And do you think that's going to lead to some unexpected outcomes in some of these machine learning and AI experiments as we progress? Fascinating aspect of the, uh, the rapid acceleration in the pace of innovation related to AI is the rapid acceleration in innovation related to infrastructure to support our insatiable appetite for data. So just uh, last week, a company called Samba Nova Systems raised $250 million for AI-optimized chips. One of the best performing stocks, uh, at least on the NASDAQ over the last 12 to 18 months is NVIDIA. Um, NVIDIA was a chip company for gamers. It's now a chip company for AI-optimized hardware. The fact that I can now rent a GPU from AWS for what it would cost me to rent mountains of computing power a couple of years ago, five years ago, call it, has completely democratized access to the kinds of computing power that have, you know, has essentially devolved the problem of training these massive models and, um, you know, ingesting and automating the life cycle of the machine learning model. Ordinary developers, about 20 million developers in the world, and all of a sudden, the role of the of the developer and the role of the data scientists are going to start merging. So you're going to see conventionally trained developers have access to the computing resources, the skills and the APIs or the libraries that they need to do kind of full stack development of machine learning driven programs. So, you know, we talked, not we, but you know, Mark Andreessen of Netscape fame, now a venture capitalist, you know, famously talked about software eating the world. 10 years ago, now we talk about AI eating software. So it's this fusion of cloud infrastructure with TPUs and GPUs and AI accelerated hardware that is creating a landscape in which not only is every company a software company, but every developer now has the skills to be able to incorporate AI and machine learning into tr traditional software. So to the point you made about some of the tweets you've seen and some of the, the papers that were discussed last week, fascinating time to be a technologist because the, the power that we have to be able to introduce these new technologies is is uh, orders of magnitude uh, more than it ever has been before it's pretty amazing times so a bit of a non sequitur but not really you were talking about how we have all of this now especially as as we have all of this AI technology, we have this tremendous breadth of, of information, of uh, ready, readily available information, and therefore stimulation. How, in your opinion, how in your mind, do we need to prepare ourselves to use this AI technology for good and not evil? The program that I have developed with Charlie Maps, we talk about mindfulness, activation, purpose, and surrender, and how we can 
begin to unpack and re-choreograph our minds so that we're not swept away in the uh, in the fantastic uh, rush of information that we're offered. How in your mind is is there is there anything that is being developed or how do we prepare ourselves to not get swept away in that rush still swimming within within the tides of, of the of the changing of the changing waves but not you know getting swept away and uh, or trying to swim upstream to fight the flow. I love that acronym maps. I'm glad, I'm glad someone's doing that. So to, to unpack the, the topic I think there are two um, key points that you made. One is um, kind of the ethics of AI, um, which is a, a rapidly evolving field. Um, and the other is rediscovering what it means to be mindful, what it means to be human, um, what it means to have a relationship um, with machines. So I, I'll take them kind of in that order. In terms of the ethics of AI, in the next 18 months, you'll see regulatory frameworks introduced that assess the quality of AI. So you can think of every technology that incorporates any form of AI as having essentially like a good housekeeping seal of approval or a scorecard. Think of it like a report card. These scorecards will be kind of predicated on a few ways to, to, to measure the quality of AI. For example, AI decisions that are made using AI, whether it's, you know, should you get a loan or, you know, should you be convicted of a crime? How many cops to put on the street? You know, these are all t decisions that are increasingly made uh, with autonomous AI-driven applications, algorithms. When AI is being used to make decisions, it must be transparent. So it must be clear to who whoever's impacted by those decisions that AI was used. Um, it must be explainable. So you must be able to know what parameters, what, what, which of my data was used to be able to make that algorithmic decision. And lastly, it must be configurable. So as a, as a you know, again, the, the, the recipient of a decision made by AI, I must be able to perform some kind of sensitivity analysis. So let's say someone was convicted of a crime, perhaps because they had a misdemeanor related to you know, they were, they were smoking outside the, uh, uh, you know, outside the boys' room in high school, you know, 20 years ago, right? Misdemeanor for who knows what. And that, you know, mark on their criminal record was used, you know, maybe to, you know, incarcerate them for something unrelated. Explainable, configurable, and transparent. That potentially convicted felon should be able to see, you know, that it was actually that misdemeanor from 20 years ago that was what affected the decision. So there are going to be, you're going to see ethical frameworks that make all AI driven applications or algorithmically made decisions, transparent, predictable, and configurable. And so that transparency that you're talking about to the Yvonne's of the world, because to, to your average technologist, to your average, even just regular average scholar who's curious about this stuff, uh, it may be more accessible. But to the Yvonne's, how is that transparency going to be communicated so that they understand how this transition is happening and so that they are willing to get on the boat with you? In Yvonne's case, it's more innocuous. Um, in the context of work, that application will essentially be badged. And every place, let's say, you know, literally in the context of Yvonne's application, she'll see a badge on the field that was delivered via an algorithm. So it'll be, it'll be very clear visually in the context of her application that, you know, this prediction or that, you know, this link to this video about how to configure the APN setting on a BlackBerry, that was driven by uh, an, an AI-aided algorithm. So that's, that one's pretty straightforward. In a, in a court of law, similarly, any verdict, let's say that's delivered or a conviction, um, you know, will be asterisked when part of that decision was aided by AI. So you will actually be transparent to both the person delivering the decision and the person who's on the other end, the receiving end of the decision, that this was algorithmically based. And there will be opportunities to know what factors went into the, to, to that decision. As a technologist, this both excites me and in some ways, I don't want to use the word frighten because frighten is not the right word, but, but makes me apprehensive. I definitely see the potential for 
utilizing this, especially in the criminal justice world, and I know it's already being used to make parole and probation decisions and things of that nature in various places, I definitely see a potential to use AI as a way to drive out systemic institutional biases that exist today. Uh, and there's lots and lots of them. Uh, you know, if you look in the financial world, the way credit decisions are made today, and there's some AI ML influence in that today, but there's always a bias, right? Based off your zip code, based off, you know, certain aspects of your past uh, with, in some cases, without context. Criminal justice, especially, I think, you know, you look at the concept of institutional bias in the criminal justice system, and it's demonstrable. Right? You can go and you can look, just at, look at a incarceration rates by ethnicity, and you can see that there is an institutional bias. Whether it's something that we as humans acknowledge or, or not in the moment, that exists. You know, it is undeniable. And I definitely see the potential for AI to take some of our lesser human characteristics and eliminate that from, from some of these systems. On the flip side of it is, if there is a machine that lacks empathy, that lacks the ability to understand the human condition to some degree, and to look in the eyes of a human being and try to be a judge of their character and of their future ability to be a productive member of our society, we may be losing something. And, and again, I think you know you you nailed it earlier dan when you said if it requires empathy we should be very cautious about putting a machine in a human's place and i really think that we need to be very judicious in how we decide where we're going to put ai in between humans and i and i'm very excited for the possibility and i think there's a lot of potential good but i also think that we need to be very thoughtful and very empathetic to keep coming back to that word about how we how we make this application so it's exciting to me here that we're working on these things it's also exciting to hear that we're we're looking at regulating this and examining this the way we do so many other things because of the huge potential impact it's going to have on humans in their lives to that point um uh, obviously a hot topic is ai introducing bias or is it mitigating bias that exists, uh, you know, the, the, the impact of bias already? I, not surprisingly, I, I propose the latter, not, not, not the former, although it is our responsibility as technologists to be very aware of the way institutional biases have, uh, you know, have impacted decision-making historically. And knowing that when we train AI on data sets, that represent our uh, institutional biases, AI will just replicate those biases. A good, good example is, uh, this one's got a lot of airtime in the press, not surprisingly. AI was asked to assess using facial, facial recognition, the likelihood that members of Congress were, uh, were criminals. And not surprisingly, um, members of Congress that were from underrepresented minorities, Hispanic, black, et cetera, were significantly overrepresented. They were, uh, they were labeled as criminals using a combination of mugshots and things like that versus the, the white Congress people. The AI wasn't inherently biased. The data, however, tended to say that when we look at mugshots, more of the mugshots were of underrepresented minorities. And so this, you know, Shane, to your point, these institutional biases were reinforced by the AI. It's not that the AI was inherently biased. And so it's incumbent on us as developers to recognize that the bias lives in the training data. And part of the, these principles, kind of the ethical use of AI, transparency, explainability, configurability that I was talking about are to make it very visible, to really expose these biases in the data. But let's be really clear, the biases in the data are because of underlying biases that we as humans have. It's not that the AI is introducing these biases. It's just accelerating the realization that these biases exist in society. So I, I you know, again, as a, as a proponent of these technologies, I'd argue, let's bring this conversation to the forefront and let's use AI as a lightning rod to get around, you know, the virtual table and talk about the underlying biases we have as a society. Let's not use it as an opportunity to blame the technology. Throughout history, you know, whether it's the Luddites in the 18th century or, you know, on forward, you know, those who have, you know, have argued against innovation through technology tend to be on the wrong side of history. And that will happen again. Let's let it catalyze a dialogue and, and, and kind of help humanity as a result. 
Yeah, and I think there's caution in here. Like like all good creators, we want to make these things in our own image. And the key, I think, is to make that in measured ways that it is representative of the communities that they're supporting and not just biased by the individuals and the data we feed it. So and not that I'm saying we're going to feed individuals to these machines, uh, you know, the, <laughs> the individuals that create it. And retraining, retraining folks a little bit about what we talk about is, you know, not just reacting. So our natural inclination, because we're moving so fast, is to just react, to activate choices. And therefore, because of our activations, we draw a new purpose, we draw a new end result. And so I think in my in my scope i'm seeing there is a bit of a challenge for some people because there's so much available information there's an inclination to just react to just act and move fast and check the boxes and so finding that you know it's it's a bit antithetical but you know finding the spaces where we can become more mindful amidst the technology. Uh, and I don't know exactly what that looks like. I think I am going to need to dig a little bit deeper into understanding the AI. So maybe we need to have a little chat if, if you can have some time. Uh, but, but having, you know, having the knowledge and having the resources to be training people in a different, in a different way, uh, more than just to use the technology. But what is that new relationship going to look like? That's the second part of what you brought up in the context of the MAPS acronym is it's not just the regulatory frameworks or the ethical components, but understanding that algorithmically made decisions will infiltrate our lives coming to terms with, you know, what does that mean? How, how will yeah. it make me a better person? You know, no, knowing that these decisions are algorith algorithmically aided and potentially data biased, how can I use that knowledge to reshape or inform my decision about, you know, how I, how I interact with technology. I think that's, you know, going to shape every, every career moving forward. You know, I know that's something I, I, you know, I strongly encourage that we introduce some of these concepts into curricula in school, starting even, you know, my, my kids are in elementary school, you know, I'd love them to start to learn not about, you know, Bayesian inference, you know, they, they, they don't need to, you know, to, to to learn the philosophy or, you know, some of the mechanics behind the statistics and the math, but I want them to start thinking about what it means to, you know, kind of be, be part of a society that is being made better every day through the introduction of new technologies. Absolutely, Absolutely. agree. So, so let me ask you a question. Some of our fellow technologists in the world, one of them being a famous billionaire who's invented some cool stuff, has recently, uh, and actually he's been pretty consistent over the last four or five years, talking about the fear that he has that AI will at some point decide we're a bunch of idiots and the world's better off without us. What do you think besides legislation and mindful creation of these entities, what do you really think is going to drive us not to get to this dystopian future that that so many of us fear. Yeah, it's ironic that Elon Musk, of all people, would would be a fear monger when it comes to AI. It was Sundar Pichai, uh, CEO of, of I guess now called Alphabet, but of Google, that said uh, AI is the most powerful technology that we've ever encountered since the discovery of fire. <laughs> And then you have Elon Musk on the other end of the spectrum saying that uh, it's more powerful than nukes. And so, you know, we've got our leaders, you know, technologists that we admire across the spectrum, uh, you know, everything from, uh, you know, really um, filling, you know, a lot of people who are, have conflicted ideas about, you know, what to make of these technologies with fear and, and also with hope. My advice is, first of all, to the leaders, you know, I, I don't think Musk does any of us a, a service. I think that what he's done at SpaceX and Tesla, et cetera, he's changing the world doing that. Don't diminish the amazing accomplishments of those companies that, you know, that you're running by feeding the popular press with the, you know, this kind of fear mongering. Instead, I'd say, you know, we're all going to have to make these decisions for ourselves. And I propose that the faster we can make these technologies that are driven by AI, transparent, predictable, explainable. I, th I feel like that is really what's going to stimulate this public conversation 
about the future of technology more than the, you know, these kind of headline grabbing sound bites. I'd rather just kind of, again, starting in schools, starting in, you know, in places of work, be in a position where we're, as leaders, we're, we're having these conversations openly and they're not driven by fear and they're not driven by some of our more base instincts. They're more driven by facts and by an appreciation for you know, how these technologies can make us better humans. I, for one, just want to go on the record officially and say I welcome our new AI overlords, just so <laughs> that's out there and in the, in the algorithms. Uh, but no, I, you know, I, think, I think it's easy to fear monger. It's harder to, to paint a hopeful future and draw the mental maps that people need to see how their lives are going to be better in the future. And that is hard work. I mean, the, you know, I've been doing organizational change in enterprise software for the better part of 20 years now and getting people to see where they fit into the future as you change the technology landscape is the hardest part. The technology, honestly, is the easiest. We make cool stuff all the time and plenty of cool stuff fails to actually be successful because we don't get there. Right, We don't do the hard work that's required to map people to where they're going. Laura, in the last few minutes we have here with Dan, do you have any, any other questions for him? We talked a lot about the dirty, monotonous tasks. How will we discern what is a monotonous task, I guess, as we, as we come forward? Because uh, that line, I, I think, will probably shift as Shane was talking about. You know, AI may decide that we are, you know, we're a bunch of idiots. And, you know, where, how do we draw that line between what is monotonous and what is human? I think it's, it's happening every day just because we're finding that the pace of technology is accelerating so fast that things that are monotonous are no longer what you or I define as monotonous. They're naturally <laughs> being automated via the application of these technologies, whether it's robots, hardware, software, etc. And so um, I think, you know, we're naturally being forced to assess what is, you know, kind of in the Venn diagram, what falls outside of the category of kind of dull, dirty and dangerous are the things that you know, machines are not are just inherently not good at doing rather than thinking kind of it's not a philosophy exercise about what's dull, dirty and dangerous. It's really, you know, where are empathy and rational judgment, um, you know, just naturally still required. Those are things that are always going to fall outside of that, that, that intersection of dull, dirty, dirty and dangerous. And I think the, the only thing we could do wrong at this kind of, uh, you know, fork in the road is to think that um, you know we can keep doing what we've always been doing, um, you know, and not embrace you know the uh, uh, you know the new technologies that are that are entering the workplace. Absolutely, mm. Dan. I appreciate you joining us today. I appreciate you spending some quality time and, and yeah. coming to the conversation with a lot of, of thoughtful insight as to where we're going and what we should be doing with this technology. So. I look forward to our next in-person uh, conversation. And uh, until then, have a great day. Likewise. Laura, fantastic. thanks, thanks, for, thanks for another great conversation. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. On behalf of my fellow hosts, Laura Araujo, Matt Drew, and myself, Shane Carlson, we'd like to thank you for listening. Be sure and check out our website at www.techno-biotic.com and be sure to follow us on all the usual social media outlets. Until next time. Technobiotic.